0: I want you to take a second and ask this question. Who is someone in your life that you would consider very loving? Someone who loves you well? Who's that person or persons in your life? As you think about that question, here's another question. What about the way in which they love you? Like, what what is it about the way that they love you that that makes such a difference? All right. As you're thinking about that, I'm sure there's people popping in your head. I hope so. I hope there's people who really love you people like maybe your mom or your dad or maybe a really close friend. For me, my wife pops into my mind immediately as someone who loves me really well. And what is it that makes her love me so well? What, it, what is it about her love that like I find like, wow, that's amazing the way in which she loves me. It's this. She puts up with me. She puts up with me with all my quirks and all my weirdness and craziness and all my mess ups. She's there loving me along the way. Essentially, I would say her love is very patient and kind. That's what the writer of 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul, says in the chapter 13, very familiar section. He immediately starts off with this idea that love is patient, love is kind. We're going through this series called Love Is. It's a study through 1 Corinthians. We're going through the text. We're into chapter 4 this week. So if you have a Bible, open it to chapter 4 of 1 Corinthians. As you're opening your Bible, I want you to remember a few things from Corinthians about what we've said about love. Uh, Pastor Carlos has been each week taking us through these chapters, and he's been using a statement like this. Love is. In fact, let me just pause for a second, because if you're thinking, you know, Pastor Carlos is usually the one up here teaching. What are you doing here? Well, today I am in his place, because speaking of love, actually— Uh, He is this weekend with his family. They are celebrating a wedding up in Tennessee. His son has just been married. And a big congratulations to Connor and Emily. Love you guys. And so uh, I am here today. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians 4, like I said. Love is, and and really, if you want to write down a statement, here it is. Love is patient and kind. I know I cheated, like that's exactly what it says in 1 Corinthians 13, but just stick with me here because you're gonna see in, uh, v- from chapter one to chapter four because i want to refresh your memory a little bit, how Paul is consistently showing his love for this church by being patient and kind. So let's go back to chapter one for just a second. In chapter one, you have the greeting, Paul, uh, you know, who he is, who he's addressing, and then you get into verse 5, and he says that you have been enriched in all speech and knowledge. Verse 7, he says, you're not lacking in any gift. You have everything. And I think there's some parallels to our lives within the church today that, that the church at Corinth would find, and I think when we find those parallels, it's easy for us to make some applications in our life. Just as it was true for the church at Corinth, it's true for us. We we have so much in Christ. We lack nothing. And then he says, here's the problem, right? That although they're rich, they're living like they're poor. We can do that. We can be so rich but live like we're poor. Because in verse verse 10 he says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. So that's his appeal. The problem with the church right now is there's divisions. Some have said, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos," I follow Peter. And these divisions are messing up the church. And Paul says, look, stop living this way. Be united. It's the same appeal we need to hear today. Be united. Don't let there be divisions among us. Don't hold up leaders and say, oh, look, I follow this leader. They've definitely, you know, the right kind of leader. And, and like, you should come over to my camp and be under their flag that, look, they believe this, this, and this, and that's the right things to believe. It's easy for us to fall into that trap. But Paul says, don't let it happen. Instead, As you'll see in chapter 4, it says this is the way you should think about us as leaders of the church. And I'm going to summarize this talk into four parts. I'm going to give you the four parts up front so you can kind of follow along. Part 1 is this. He's answering this question. How you should view church leaders. Then we're going to talk about what we should not do. Then 3, how we should view ourselves. And then what we should do. So how we should view church leaders, what we should not do, how we should view ourselves, and what we should do. That's the four parts we're going to go through today. So, so if we're not supposed to hold up these church leaders in a way in which it causes divisions, how are we supposed to view these servants of Christ? Look at verse 1 of chapter 4. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. So we have Paul saying, here's two ways in which you should view us. First of all, you should view us as servants. Originally, that word literally meant an under rower. What I mean by that, what they meant by that, would be you would would find these large ships, and at the bottom of these large ships would be these slaves who would be there rowing the boat. I think of the movie Ben-Hur, if you've ever seen that old movie, You'll, you'll remember him in the ship rowing to the beat of the drum. And the word would go on to be developed and mean someone who receives orders and directions and follows them. Paul says, that's the kind of servant I am. I, I don't go where I want. I go where Christ tells me to go. I do as he pleases. And then he says, you should, you should see us as stewards, stewards of the mysteries of God. That word carries with it the idea of a deputy or manager or administrator. A rich landowner might pick a steward and charge him over his entire estate. You might think of Joseph. In the story in the Old Testament, you know, Joseph gets sold into slavery by his brothers. But there he rises in the household of Potiphar. And Potiphar says, look, Joseph, I'm going to put you in charge of everything. And eventually he gets in trouble with, uh, when Potiphar's wife makes a false accusation. And then he goes to the prison. And then, if you know the whole story right, he gets elevated there in the whole kingdom of Egypt. And he rises to the same sort of position where Pharaoh says, you're in charge. Whatever you say goes. But Joseph's not working on his own behalf. He's working on behalf of Pharaoh. He's the steward. And as Pharaoh would want him to do, he thus acts. And so Paul is saying, God has entrusted me to be that kind of steward, to do what he has called me to do. That's the call for church leaders, to be servants and to be stewards of the mysteries of God. Okay, what's the mysteries of God? It's what Paul has been saying all through this letter. It's the wisdom of God. It's Christ crucified. It's the gospel. It's the power of God. And we have this incredibly great news that we get to share and be stewards of, that I get to share and be steward of today. So we're servants and we're stewards. And what that means is we're not the message. We're the means of the message. We're not on show. We put Christ on show for everyone. And so if you see someone lifting up themselves and not lifting up Christ, we have a problem within the church. So leadership in the church should look much different than it can look outside the church. Right? It should look piercingly different. I mean, the, the church leaders serve from the bottom up. Our tendency is to put people on pedestals and say, look, they're important, like, Everyone, you know, I, I don't even know if maybe you can even approach them because, look, they've got it going on. They're, they're in charge. But as church leaders, we serve from the bottom up. We're servants. We do as we are told. We're stewards of the mysteries of the gospel. We, we serve on behalf of Christ as his representative. And then what is, it, what is God looking for in those church leaders? Is it that they have great eloquence of speech? Paul has already said, I didn't come to you with this eloquent speech. So God's not looking for that. What's God looking for? And it says it there in verse 2. He's looking for faithfulness. Not great ability, not great wisdom, not great eloquence of speech. He's looking for faithfulness. So those who are leading and preaching, we should see them as servants and stewards, and you're going to see that that's not just the church leaders. We're going to circle around to this at the end. Try not to go too far there yet. But that what's true of them needs to be true of us. So what should we not do? In verses 3 through 5, we have that. Let's, let's read that together. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring light to the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. By the very act of holding up Paul or Apollos or Peter like the church was doing— The people have placed themselves in the position of being judge. They're saying, okay, what this person does is the correct way. And Paul says, no, 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 you can't do that. He says, first of all, you can't judge me because I can't even judge myself. God is judge, so stop judging. There's two courts in which we should not be judged. And just small side note here because judge is a really loaded word. Sometimes we are called to examine or judge people in certain places and situations, and that's a whole other talk someday. But, but there's two courts in which, according to this particular situation, in which judgment should not occur, and that's by other people and by ourselves. And I want to talk about this idea of, of how we don't judge ourselves, because that's what Paul says there. He says in verse 4, look at that with me again, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Paul is saying my, my conscience is not revealing anything, but that doesn't necessarily mean that, that there's not some action or motive that, that is, is there that I just don't know about. Greek and Roman philosophers, and I would say not just Greek and Roman philosophers, I would, I would say our, our current cultural context would fall under this too. Greek and Roman philosophers regarded one's conscience as the true judge of oneself. So it would go something like this, and I think this is how it works in our culture too. It, it says, it would be like, I don't need your approval because I know my heart's in the right place. You know, I, I think it's right, <laughs> so therefore it's fine with me. I think it's fine. But Paul is saying that we can't judge ourselves. Why? Because. Here's here's how one commentator puts it, Leon Morsey he says, here's the problem when we judge ourselves. We can either depress ourselves beyond reason, or we can exalt ourselves beyond measure. Right? We can we can put ourselves way up too high. We can th- man, that was great. What we did out, you know, the way we've been treating people, the way we've been loving, the way we've been living the Christian life. I'm good. Or we can get super depressed. I've fallen again into sin. I know I shouldn't have done it. I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have done it. And so when we start to judge ourselves in that way, we can fall into one of those two traps. It's the Lord who judges. He's the one who brings to light the purposes of the heart, these verses say. You go back into the Old Testament. You remember Samuel. Samuel goes to the house of Jesse. He knows there's going to be a new king in Israel. He goes to the house of Jesse. He says, surely this, this son is going to be the king of Israel. No, this one. And he's looking at their outward appearance, and he's seeing, like, this has got to be the guy. And God says, no, I don't look at outward appearances. I look at the heart. In the New Testament, we have Jesus who redefines murder and adultery when he says, if you look at a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery in your heart already. Or if you look at someone so angrily that that you're just, "Ah, I could kill them. You've committed murder in your heart. God looks at our hearts. But can I give you some good news? The Apostle Paul says in Romans 4, it's another book that he wrote, in Romans 4 he says, those who believe God justifies the ungodly. For those who believe God justifies the ungodly. That means that when God comes to judge our hearts and all the hidden things are are put out in the open, when we believe in Jesus, we are still declared righteous. And that's good news. How then should you view yourself? Verses 6 through 13, let's, let's look at that. Because it would have been okay for a group of people to have, cel- to have celebrated Apollos as their spiritual leader. But the problem comes when you get to verse 6, where it says that that. None of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. So the problem is, when we start not just celebrating a church leader, we start to elevate them to a position of like, you know, where it's not healthy, we get puffed up in favor of one against another. And he uses that word puffed up. And I think that's an important phrase because he says in chapter 8, verse 1, let me read that, it says, this knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. So there's a contrast there of pride versus love. Essentially, that's what he's getting to here. That when we uh, bring these divisions into the church, it's a pride thing where we think we're right and the other person isn't. And so we live in pride instead of love because when you think of something puffed up, I immediately think of a balloon, you know, puffing up a balloon. You think about trying to build your life on pride, and you, if you try to build on a balloon, it's going to pop. If you build your life on love, it's a true and solid foundation. So he says, that's the difference. Love builds up. Knowledge puffs up. Then he says in verse 7, this is when he's really going to start hammering them. He says for who sees anything different in you? Three questions are going to pop his balloon pop their balloon right here. What do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? He's saying, are you so special? You didn't do anything to earn that, and if you didn't do anything to earn it, why are you prideful about it? There's something about a good question that that will lead us and bring us to a new place. Again, we, we have this idea of where Paul is. He's gently bringing the church back to where they need to be. He's calling them to a place of cross-centeredness, of Christ-centeredness. And he's doing it here with some questions. Yeah, I don't know. I just think it's a good application Boy, We might be around people that we want to um, bring along in love. And, and sometimes it just it starts with questions like this. Let's, let me just ask you. I mean, ask these questions again to yourself. Like, am I really that special? Is, is there something I've done to receive all the things I have in Christ. We, we said earlier, like, like, let's look at our lives, how much we have. What have we done to earn that? Nothing. Christ gave, to, gave all of that to us. And he says in verse 8, Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings and would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. He's saying <laughs> look you guys think you have it all figured out. You you think you've arrived. You think you've you've got it. You've got your lives together. You're living like kings and it's an illusion. You see there was a, a phrase that was very common in their day by a stoic philosopher who said I alone am rich. I alone reign as king. Paul's saying, look, this, you're, you're not looking like Christ. You're, you're looking like the world, like that philosopher who's saying, I alone am rich. I alone reign as king. You think you have it all, but it's not true. Because here's the problem that we've discovered from this letter. When, when we as a church start looking too much like everyone around us, the cross has lost its centrality. Right? I mean, think about the message of the cross. Paul's already told us the cross is foolishness to the world. Therefore, we will be foolishness to the world if it is central in our lives. And it is foolishness when you think about the message we're proclaiming that that there was a son of God who came to the earth and and he lived this perfect life and he was brutally executed. And if you believe in this, Jesus, you'll have communion with the God who created the universe. To human ears, that is crazy. But to us who are being saved it is the power of God. And so if we're looking too much like the world around us, then, then more than likely we have lost the centrality of the cross. Paul then moves on to say, for I, I think that God has exhibited us as apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Our three-year-old little girl has been saying the most hilarious things recently. So just... This week, I, I could can, I can give you like 10 stories. One of them this week, I was with her and we were downstairs um, and we were looking out the window and there was a, a fawn that had just come into our backyard and was like running around. I said, Raya, come over here. I picked her up. We're looking out the window. We're just watching the deer just cross back and forth throughout the lawn. And I go, Raya, I think, I think she's looking for her mommy maybe or she doesn't know where her mommy is. And then she like turns to me looks at me very matter-of-factly, and says, her mommy died. I was like, what? And then I realized she had watched Bambi just not that long before that. Uh, another thing that she said that was funny uh, this, this past week, we're, we're sitting there eating lunch, and all of a sudden she just starts talking about apples that are stinky, and, and how she doesn't like getting apples on her feet. And we're like, what are you talking about? Like, stinky apples, apples on your feet? What, what's going on? And, and she says... So finally we get it. We're like, oh, I know what she's talking about. We had recently gone up to pick apples at an apple orchard. And there's really this like stark contrast there where we're on top of this beautiful mountain in North Carolina, this orchard, but it's one of those you pick orchards. And if you've been in one of those before, a lot of apples end up on the ground. And we're walking through the orchard and there's kind of a little stinky smell. And there's apples that are rotting and they, sometimes get on your shoes as you're walking through the orchard, and she just did not like that. that was, she was recalling that, you know, a, a short time later of like how she didn't like the apples on her feet, and here's what's, here's what's interesting, is when Paul says, we have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things, that's what he says in verse 13. The word refuse of all things literally means something you would do to Scrape off your feet, like the stuff you would scrape off your feet. That's what we are. How should we view ourselves? Well, according to Paul, he says, as scum of the earth. But there's more to that, right? Because we shouldn't be just looking at ourselves saying, we're trash. That's not right. Because we've already said it, we are rich. We have the most incredible spiritual wealth. But to the world, we're poor. The truth is, we are rich. We own everything. But at the same time, we have nothing. We did nothing to earn it. And Paul says, you have to live your life like that. As one commentator, David Pryor, puts it, we are at one and at the same time both kings and paupers. We are rich to the world. We are rich, but to the world we are poor. We are strong, but to the world we are weak. We're kings and paupers. And our life has to live constantly in that tension of where we are saying, we know we have all things in Christ. In chapter 3, he said, all things are yours. But when it comes to fleshly human things that's not the case. And to be rich in Christ is to live the sort of life that Paul says we should live. Because now it's not just how we should see ourselves as scum of the earth but now he's saying this is how you should live. We don't have time to cover all the verses of 14-21 through but I want to bring home one point that he makes in those verses. He says, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. There it is again. He, I love you guys. I want you to hear this. He's saying, I'm encouraging you. I'm not trying to shame you. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. You might remember, I was the one who, who started this church. I'm coming to you like a father would come to his son or daughter I urge you then, verse 16, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. He's saying the way in which I describe my life, that's not just for church leaders. The way in which I just called you to be servants and stewards, that, to call church leaders to that, that's not just for church leaders. That's for all of us. But I will come to you soon as the Lord wills, and I'll find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What is that power? It's the power of changed lives, it's the power for us to live every day like the way Paul describes as servants and stewards of the mysteries of the gospel. It's calling us to live in a way that's so different than the way that the world looks. So we have to step back and say, are we living like fools? Or are we like the Corinthian church and living like kings? When I was in South Asia earlier this year, I met this pastor. And at first I had no idea he was a pastor. We go to do this training. We're in this little bitty church. I sit all the way in the back. I'm just trying to kind of hang back. I'm trying to take some pictures check out what's going on. I don't, I don't think I was teaching that day. And as we're doing the trainings, I'm watching this particular man who's sitting next to me. There's nothing that like speaks that he's anything special, but I'm, I'm drawn to him. He's scribbling down notes furiously as, as we're going through the training. Later, we'd find out that day our, our team would spend some more time with him we'd find out that he was actually the church planner, the church starter of that little church that was so enthusiastic about the gospel. They were going out there making disciples. It was really, really amazing. And so he had started that church along with five or ten other churches. He's scribbling down notes for things that he's already like doing and living. In fact, I, I would have no doubt that in a context like that, this is where we see things played out the way that the Apostle Paul describes it, where there's persecution, where you have to live homeless sometimes, where you have to work with your hands and labor, and when the world will sometimes treat you like scum. And I have no doubt that as I spoke with that pastor experienced just a little slice of his life, that that's what he was living. And it's convicting to me because we can live so comfortably here, right? But what would it look like for us to do what Paul calls us to do, to imitate him? He's lovingly, patiently, kindly calling us to imitate him. So let's do it. Let's be a fool. Let's be weak. Let's be held in disrepute. Let's hunger. Let's thirst. Let's go homeless. Let's work. Let's become the scum of the world. Let's let the cross be the central part of our life and let it affect everything we do for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of knowing Christ, for the sake of others knowing Christ. Lord, will you take this idea that Paul presents to us through your scripture. It's not Paul's words, it's your words. Would you take that this morning and let it sink into our lives in a way in which it changes us? We love you, Jesus. We're thankful for the cross and what you did. May it continue to be central in our lives. And it's in your name we pray, amen.